The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Hey, so glad that you are here. Welcome City Rev Church. Glad that we are gathering together this weekend, and so glad that we can celebrate that truth that Jesus has won. So grateful to be gathering together. And a part of what we're going to do in this service together is we are going to be taking communion together and celebrating the unity, the miracle of unity that happens uh, when we gather together. So if you have those communion elements, uh, bread and juice, you can set those aside. And at the end of our Bible study time here, we are, are going to take communion together. We are in a brand new series called Take Courage, Studying the Life of Gideon. And I want to begin today with part one. I want to begin by talking about a particular general who is known for his courage. Uh, the general uh, Napoleon. Napoleon was known for his courage. He would celebrate courage with his troops when he saw a particular uh, soldier or one of his officers uh, showing courage. He would celebrate that. He had great courage personally in his battle plan. I mean, almost recklessly so um, going into Russia and then having to retreat in the dead of winter and, and really almost recklessly courageous, losing tens of thousands of his, his troops in that retreat. He was a man of great courage. But there is one moment in his life where an unexpected attack really shook his courage. And it was at the beginning of the 19th century. And he was, after one of his, his uh, accomplishments, he was throwing a feast, a huge celebration. He brought some of the uh, officials of his military together. They were going to have a, a giant party celebration. And one of the things they wanted to do in addition to feasting is that they were going to have, go on a hunt. They were going to have a hunt. And so they brought in rabbits. They were going to, to hunt down these rabbits. And so he got one of his uh, officers, one of his aides, to go find hundreds of rabbits, put them in cages, and then they would release them. And then he and his men would enjoy the sport of hunting down these rabbits. So they gathered all the rabbits They on a field. They spread out the cages. The men who were going to participate in the hunt went out into the middle of the field. And they, they opened up the cages. And all of these bunnies go running out into the field. Now, historians differ a little bit on how many rabbits there were. Some say hundreds. Some say thousands. Whatever it was, it was a lot of rabbits. And what happened next is what none of them expected. All of the rabbits, instead of scurrying in every different direction, they all ran towards the group of men in the middle of the field. And so they all began to chuckle, well, this isn't going to be much sport. This isn't going to be not much fun. All the rabbits are, are coming down to the middle. And um, so you have hundreds of rabbits, maybe thousands of these rabbits. They come to the middle and they start jumping on the men, Napoleon included. In fact, there were so many, just wave upon wave of these bunnies jumping on the men, jumping up on their coats, that the men had to try and beat off the rabbits. They were trying to like brush off the rabbits, but they kept coming, more waves. They came around, they flanked them. They came around from behind. They had to eventually retreat. So here you have one of the greatest generals in history actually retreating from an army of bunnies. 
And he goes all the way back to his carriage. They say that there were even bunnies leaping into his carriage. And it wasn't until he rode off that he was uh, completely safe from this attack of bunnies. Now, they, it came out later that the problem was they had gotten domesticated rabbits instead of wild rabbits. And the domesticated pet rabbits, when they saw all the men in the middle of the field, figured that they were there to feed them. And so they all ran and covered these men, thinking they were going to get their lunch. Either way, it went down as a ridiculous and embarrassing moment in Napoleon's uh, career where a band of bunnies sent him running in the opposite direction. Man, unexpected things can shake our courage. I think we can all agree when speaking of unexpected things, this year, 2020, has had a lot of unexpected things. Things that we probably did not realize that we would be dealing with, that we would be addressing. And so in seasons like this, it's so natural for our courage to be shaken. It's so natural for, our, for us to, to have fear. And there's very, various things right now in our community, in our city, in our nation, in our world that can bring about fear. But here's what the Bible says about fear. It says, we have not been given a spirit of fear or timidity, but one of power. We have been given a spirit of courage. And so we're going to be talking in this series about courage. And we're going to look at the story of a man named Gideon a man that God taught him about overcoming fear. And in this season, we're going to take the next several weeks looking at the life of this man, Gideon, and learning how we can have courage and where that source of our courage is, no matter what is going on in our world or in our lives. We're going to be looking in the book of Judges. As you're turning there, since we're kicking off this series, let me just set the context for the book of Judges. So for starters, where does Judges fit in with biblical history? You've got, of course, Genesis. Uh, God makes the world. You've got, he starts his people with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph in Egypt. And then Exodus, you have Moses. You have the people that are oppressed in Egypt. Moses is a deliverer. God raises up. He leads them out of Egypt. He gets the Ten Commandments and the law on Mount Sinai. They wander around in the wilderness for a generation and then Joshua leads them into the promised land. There's many battles, and they eventually settle in the promised land. And the next segment in history is the period of the judges. It spans several generations, and it's the period between Joshua and the kings. So it's between Joshua and then King Saul and then King David and Solomon and the whole Davidic dynasty that goes all the way into when they're taken into exile by Babylon hundreds of years later. But this is the segment of Judges where there's various individuals that God raises up to lead. But in this time period, God is operating as their king. Now the book of Judges has this cycle that happens over and over and over even though God's people have been brought out of Egypt, they've seen God's mighty hand, he's called them through Abraham, he's brought them out of Egypt, they've, they've been given God's law. Over and over, generation after generation, one after another throughout the book of Judges, they turn away from God. And what God does is he will then allow an outside enemy to oppress God's people they will then, to try and draw them back to himself, they will then call out to God. 
God will raise up a judge, a deliverer, a savior, a rescuer who will deliver them from that oppression and then they will turn back to God. But the problem is the very next generation falls away again. And you have the cycle over and over and over again. The challenge with the book of Judges is it's not just a cycle. It's actually a downward spiral. It gets worse and worse and worse. And each judge, you can actually see this reflected in the lives of these judges because the judges themselves, God uses them mightily and we celebrate that and we learn a lot from their lives. But these judges, they are not heroes. There are many of them, especially the latter judges, have deep fractures in their character. But the paradigm of these deliverers, these judges, are ultimately pointing to one perfect deliverer. We'll talk about that a little bit more today. But it's this downward spiral that ultimately culminates at the end of the book of Judges with this final sentence. This is the last sentence in the entire book of Judges. It says, this was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words... Everyone just did what they believed personally was right. They defined for themselves what was right. They defined for themselves what was true. They went in search of their own truth. They found their own truth and lived by it. I don't know about you, but that sounds familiar to me. There are many in our culture, in our society, that are proponents of that. In fact, that is a a major ideology in our society. And what this reminds us of is that is nothing new. That's not progressive at all. It's deeply ancient and very destructive. God had to rescue them out of that time and time again. Now, we're entering in in Judges chapter 6. And today, we are going to see what leads up to God needing to raise up a man named Gideon. We'll actually get to know Gideon next week, but we're going to set the context. Judges chapter 6. There's already been several judges, but we are going to get to know in this series a man by the name of Gideon. So let's take a look at Judges chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Judges 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. This new chapter in the book of Judges starts with the statement that God's people did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, typically what that's going to mean throughout the history of Israel is the fundamental problem is they stop worshiping God and they worship false gods. They worship something else. They worship idols. This is the fundamental evil that leads to all the other evils 
in their midst among, among them as a people. And the very first two commandments that they get in the Ten Commandments is thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the first one that God told them. The second one is have no idols. Those two commandments are the anchor, the foundation for the entire law that God gave them. And repeatedly he warned with them. He pleaded with them, please do not worship these fake gods and certainly don't build a statue and then worship it. That's just something you've built with your own hands. And time and time again, they get seduced into worshiping these idols. And so what happens? Well, what happens is God allows Midian to oppress them. Here's what's literally happening. These uh, Midianites right around harvest time would come through Israel, the land of Israel. So Israel would be sowing, they would be planting, and all of a sudden it'd be harvest time, and then this marauding horde would come in that could not be numbered with camels. We're not talking small bands of raiders. We're talking massive, massive group come through all of Israel, and they would take all their produce, they would take all of their crops, they would take all of their flocks and their herds, they would take it all with them, and they would just decimate this land. And here's what we have. I mean, it says that Israel was brought very low. I mean, here's what you have. First of all, you have an enemy-occupying group. The safety of every single family was in jeopardy. This is a military issue. Secondly, you have a deep economy issue. It's an economic issue. And when I say that, I'm not saying it's like they felt squeezed. Like, man, this is going to be tight. I'm getting nervous. This was like, I don't know how I'm going to feed my family. They just took all the crops and they took all of our herds. This was a very, very deep issue that had happened for seven years. And they ultimately called upon God. And they describe, before that happens, it's described as these people coming through like a swarm of locusts. And what's interesting about that is that was one of the plagues on Egypt. And so here you have this, this type of pestilence in their land where it's like they are turning from God, almost becoming Egypt. Now, I, I want to just take a time out for a second. I want to just take an aside here because I want to make sure that I'm not, um, I don't miscommunicate something. And so I want to just take an aside here for, for a second before we go any farther. I want to communicate this clearly. Um, let me just start by saying this. I think we can all agree 2020 has been crazy. I mean, it has been crazy. I, I, all the things that have happened so far, we're not even halfway through the year yet. And I just read an article uh, recently, and it said, it, the opening line said this. 2020 has another trick up its sleeve. And I said, oh no, what now? What could this possibly be? And it said that this year, swarms of cicadas will descend on the eastern part of the United States. That will happen this summer. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't sound good. You say like, so is that like locusts like now? Now we're going to have swarms of locusts descending on us? I mean, what does it all mean, okay? And I'm, I'm like reading on and they're describing what happens. And man, I got to tell you, the way they describe it is really freaky. It, it's like they describe it like this. And the particular swarm is called Brood 9. And after 
17 years of lying dormant in the ground. It will emerge from the ground. Millions of cicadas will begin their, their ancient mating ritual in the forests. And I'm like, okay, what are we talking like? Is this like a couple bugs? Some, some estimate it could be as many as 1.5 million cicadas per acre in certain parts of the eastern United States. I'm like, okay, this is bad. Okay, after everything that we've dealt with now, we have swarms of locust-type bugs. What does it all mean, okay? And I'm like, man, is that, I mean, what is that going to be? Are we going to be attacked by locusts? And really what they say is actually it's just really, really noisy, okay? But they're like, but the noise is a big issue. I mean, it's very disruptive, the noise that the cicada makes, okay? But that's really all that it is. I, I bring all this up because sometimes... In seasons like this, I sometimes hear, whether it's people or religious leaders or even sometimes preachers, and they'll look at current events and they will interpret them for God. And a lot of times they'll look at like some major event that happened and they might say something, well, this is God's judgment because of this. And, and you see this and that's what's happening here in Judges chapter 6. But sometimes preachers or Christians or religious people say, speak for God and say, well, this is God's judgment on this. And what I would like to just caution you, church, is to not say things like that and be very careful when people say things like that for a couple reasons. In just the next couple verses, God is going to rise up a prophet and you will see, he's going to come speak to Israel and you will see that he begins by saying the phrase, prophet in the Old Testament was to be the mouthpiece of God, was not to just share some ideas that they have, but actually God said, speak these words, these are my very words. And God had a mechanism inside the law for like a check and balance. If someone was a false prophet, was saying, these are the words of God, and it wasn't the words of God, that was considered a capital crime, and that prophet would be put to death. On the other side, oftentimes a true prophet speaking the word of God, if it was bad news, if the people did not want to hear it and felt convicted, they got angry and often they would beat up or torture or imprison or even kill the true prophet. So if God tapped you on the shoulder in Old Testament times and say, you're going to be my prophet, this is a very high stakes assignment, okay? You, if you are wrong, you should be killed. If you're right, you still might be killed because these people, that's how significant it was. They were speaking on behalf of God. When we interpret current events on behalf of God, that is a very audacious thing. It was a physical nation that he was going to use to impact the world. But it was a physical nation that he was in covenant with. In the New Testament, when Jesus came, he was very clear. He came to establish a kingdom not of this world. It was the kingdom of heaven, an invisible kingdom. But a, a kingdom made up of people from every nation that are citizens of this world, but even more real, they're citizens of heaven. And he sprinkled the kingdom of heaven and the citizens of heaven all over every city in the world. And so he operates. There's no single nation that operates as the physical manifestation of God's people. It is followers of Christ who are the, the, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven that God came to set up. I say all that because as we're talking about going through Crazy, a crazy season as a nation and as a world. 
And as we're learning from a crazy season here that Israel faced, I don't want to be misunderstood. I want to make a point that I'm not making on accident. I'm not saying, I'm not interpreting what's happening for God. What I do want us to see is who God is in the midst of difficult times. They call out to God. And that's ultimately why God brought this to them, is that he was drawing them back to himself. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Here's what it says. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. What does this prophet say on behalf of God? I want to pause here for a second. We're going to continue with what God says through this prophet. What does he say? The first thing he reminds them of, God wants to remind them who he is. The prophet says, remember God. This is the words of God. God is saying, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you up out of slavery. I brought you up out of oppression. In other words, he's saying, look around at these Midianites. They're small potatoes compared to the empire of Egypt that God single-handedly defeated and plundered. He says, don't you remember what I have done? Don't you remember that I am the Lord your God? I brought you up out of Egypt. And what's interesting is as he's reminding them who he is, I want to go back to the very first word of verse 7. Notice what it said. It says, when they cried out to the Lord, the Lord answered. What I love about the ancient Hebrew is sometimes it just leaves the tension and it's sometimes so suggestive. You know, why did it take seven years? When God's people called out to him, he answered. So what does that mean that God's people were doing for the last seven years? What, What were they? Obviously, they weren't content with what was happening with Midian. It was terrible. What were they doing? Well, they had up until that point, they were going to their gods. They're going to their idols. They're looking in other places to be rescued. But when they called to the Lord, he rescued them. God says, I am the one who brought you up out of Egypt, out of oppression. What's so significant is that is one of the key moments in the history of Israel where God says, I brought you out of slavery. And that's one of the frameworks that we understand who we are as a people of God. He has rescued us from slavery. We could do an entire different message and Bible study on the idea of when God is rescuing us, he's calling us out of slavery, out of our bonds of sin. Sin enslaves us and he has rescued us from sin. See, so often what, what uh, people think is when, when I turn away from God and I sin, I'm living in freedom. I'm expressing my freedom. I'm living how I want. But we don't realize we've been duped. We've been lied to. When we go into sin, we're going into oppression. It, it offers and promises freedom, but exchanges that for chains. God has called us out. Called us out of oppression 
and into freedom. That's the paradigm he reminds them of. He says, I called you out from the land of Egypt. I defeated the Egyptians. And then he goes on to say, and I said to you, this is verse 10, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Period. That's the end of the prophet's message. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, saved you. I told you, you don't need to fear. You don't need to fear anyone around you, but you haven't listened to me. And that's the end. They're left hanging. They're left with the realization that they don't deserve God to come and rescue them. So what's the answer? Should they be afraid? It says, you, you, I told you, you don't need to fear the, 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 the people in the land that you're in. So they look at each other. The prophet says, I told you you don't have to fear, but you didn't listen to my voice. Walks away. So should they fear now? Should they fear the Midianites? Should they be afraid or not afraid? How do they answer that question? The only thing they have from that prophet's word to answer that question is who God is. That's all they have is to put their hope in who God is and hope that he's not going to give them reason to fear. This part of the chapter ends on a dissonant note, but here's what we're going to find when we open this up again next week. We're going to be introduced to a very unlikely man named Gideon who God uses, he rises him up and uses him to deliver his people. Who is God? He's a deliverer. And this continues a demonstration of God's unbelievable patience, his long-suffering, as it says in the scripture, his steadfast love for his people over and over and over. Sometimes God in the Old Testament is kind of presented as a caricature, as if he's a mean, wrathful God. If that's the perspective that someone has of the Old Testament God, read the stories. Because so often what he's saying is, look, this is what you deserve, but this is what I'm going to do. And over and over he has patience and patience and patience and patience. And he delivers them time and time again. And it's all pointing to one moment. It's all, it's one demonstration of who he is that is pointing to one moment when he will send the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate judge, the ultimate savior, the ultimate rescuer, the son of God, Jesus Christ himself, who will come down to earth to save the day once and for all. Jesus would take the cross, died on the cross to pay for our sins, and then rose again after breaking the chains of the oppression of our sin. He rose again defeating death itself so that we could spend eternity in heaven and have our sins completely forgiven. It's all pointing to one great rescuer and deliverer, one great savior. They say, well, how, how do I be saved? What do I have to do to be actually saved? Well, this tells us the, the paradigm right here. Just cry out to God. 
The Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You might be here and thinking that, well, I mean, I think I'm saved. I do good things. I'm a pretty good person. I act like a Christian. I call myself a Christian. It's not about that. It's about what Jesus did, not what we do. And simply finding salvation is calling on the name of the Lord and we'll be saved. In fact, I'm gonna, in, in a few moments, I'll give you an opportunity to do that if you've never done that before. You may have lived your entire life as a Christian, but you've never actually just called on the name of the Lord. I need a savior, Jesus. I need you to save me. That's what salvation is once and for all. But what does this do for us as the people of God? We, we're in a season with so many uncertainties. I mean, what do we learn here that's for us in this crazy season? You know, we talked about Napoleon a few moments ago and his run-in with the bunnies. Well, uh, he had actually a great quote about courage. Here's what he said. He said, courage is like love. It must have hope for nourishment. What an interesting concept about courage. That what, what courage is, is it's stirred. It's, it's kept aflame. It's kindled. It's fueled by hope. So Christian, let me ask you, in this season, with all the craziness and some very real reasons that could cause us to fear, but what's your hope? What is the hope you're turning to? Because all of God's people had, all they had was who they knew God to be. Who do you know God to be? He's a deliverer. Who's your hope, Christian? Your hope is in Jesus. Your hope is in the King of Kings. Your hope is in the person who reigns for all time. Your hope is in the one who's actively currently sitting on the throne. Your hope is in the one who's still holding the reins to all the universe. Your hope is the one who is alive, the living hope, Jesus Christ. That's what our hope is described as. It's described as a living hope. It is a person. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. So if your hope was killed but defeated death. So if your hope cannot be killed, if your, if your hope cannot be stopped, if your hope is always conquering, always victorious, if your hope is all-powerful, if your hope is the King of Kings, the name above every name, if your hope is alive in Jesus Christ, what should that mean for your courage? Christian, no matter what is out there in this world today, no matter what is in our community or our city or our nation or our world, no matter what news comes our way, we know where our hope is. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Nothing has changed with who Jesus is. Nothing has changed with who is really truly in control. Jesus is still in control. He is our hope. So there is no bad news that can steal away our courage, our confidence. We are sure-footed because our Savior is surely still in control. Christian, you have not been given a spirit of fear. Put your hope in who you know God to be, a God who loves you. He's a Father, 
to this weekend as we're celebrating Father's Day. Do you know who ultimately is your father who's taking care of you? It is God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. God the Almighty who is good, who loves you and fights on your behalf and turns all things together for good. And if you have that as your hope, then you can have courage in this season. What does it look like to not have courage? What does it look like to be dominated by fear? Well, it means giving in to worry. It means giving in to, to thoughts that are starting to plague us of, oh, it's, it's, it's giving in to hopelessness. It's giving in to fatalism. It's, it's giving in to, oh, things will never turn around. It's too complicated. It's too difficult. It's too far gone. Things will never turn around. Christian, let your soul be at rest. There's no place for pessimism for a Christian because your hope is a person and that person is alive. And he is still working his plan for good. It all plays into his hands. Your hope is alive so you can have courage. Have courage today. Wake up tomorrow with confidence and courage to not give up, to keep going, to keep persevering. Have courage. But there's more than just inspiration, needed inspiration that this text gives us. Because it also reminds us if we have lost our courage, if we've fallen into fear, then it reveals that we've anchored our courage to something else other than God. And anything we put our hope in other than God is an idol. It's taking the place of God. So what are you most afraid about right now? That may reveal where your idols are. Is it a health concern? It may be a, a legitimate concern, but Jesus has your health in his hands. A political concern? It's okay to have a drive and a concern for politics and to be a good citizen, be active. But politics aren't the savior of our land. Jesus is. And so we're not going to put our hope in politics ultimately. We're going to put our hope in Jesus. Is it an economic concern? It's good to be wise financially. It's good to have awareness financially, but ultimately money is not our hope. We, we choose which master we serve, and that master is God. He's got every detail of our personal lives. He's the one who's got cattle on a thousand hills is what it says. He has all the resources and you're his child. We don't put our hope in anything other. That, that might reveal, that fear might be revealing that I have an idol in that area. That fear cues me where I'm putting my hope. Because if my hope is in the living one, Jesus Christ, then I can have confidence and courage. Church, take courage. Don't let anything steal your courage. But some of you today, it's a, a moment when, of all times, put your hope in Jesus Christ. Because maybe you're anchoring your courage to your own good deeds, your own good works. You're like, well, I, I think I'm going to be in heaven one day. I think God's going to save me because I'm a pretty good person. I mean, he's going to bring about good things in my life because I do good things. I do religious things. I do Christian things. That's not how you become a child of God. You call on the name of the Lord. You cry out to God in need of a Savior. And he always will answer if you call out to God. 
And so some of you are watching today, and I want to challenge you. Even if you've called yourself a Christian all your life, but you've never cried out to Jesus to save you, today is the day. This is the moment. Cry out to the Lord. What I want to do is I want to lead you in a prayer. Lead you in a prayer where you put your faith in Jesus. You put your hope in Jesus. Let's pray together. Wherever you're at, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's lift this prayer. I'm going I'm to lead you in a prayer, and you just repeat these words after me. So bow your head and close your eyes. If you want to cry out to Jesus for salvation today, then just simply pray this. Wherever you're at, on a couch, in your car, behind a desk, wherever you're at, you can lift this prayer, this cry out to God for salvation. Say, Jesus, I need a Savior. I know that without you, I cannot be saved. I need to be saved from my sin. But I believe you paid for that sin on the cross. And you rose again from the dead. I believe that. And through you, I've found forgiveness. I've found a deliverer and a rescuer. You are my Savior and my King. I will follow you. In Jesus' name. Hey, if you prayed that just then, you took such an important step in your life. This is probably the most significant moment in your life because it changed your whole eternity. Your eternity is secure because of Jesus and you've begun a new journey. The Holy Spirit is already at work in your heart. That was a very personal and significant moment, but it's not a private one. We want to celebrate that with you. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. If that was your prayer, I want you to go to cityrev.org faith. Go to cityrev.org faith. You can get there by just clicking on that banner on the bottom. Just click that. Say, yep, that was me. Or you can, in the comments, you'll see that link, cityrev.org faith. Or you can just type that in, cityrev.org faith. It'll take you just a, a short, um, ask you a couple questions. We just want to get a little bit of information because we just want to send you a Bible. People over the last couple months have filled it out really from all over the world. We've, we've sent Bibles all over the place for people who are taking that step. We want to celebrate this moment and walk on this journey together. You're part of this family now, and we want to celebrate that with you. Church, we're going to close our, our Bible study time and enter into a time of worship by taking communion. And so if you had set aside those elements, a juice element and a bread element, go ahead and get those now. And we're going to take communion together. This is a really important moment for us to take communion because right now, throughout the world, the world, the city, it might be very divided. There might be great division all over, but there is a miracle that happens in the body of Christ, the family of Christ among the bride of Christ, among the church, there's a miracle that happens of people from all, all different walks of life, all different backgrounds. We come together around the person of Jesus. That's the incredible, invisible, heavenly kingdom that when we're followers of Jesus, we become citizens of. And so we're going to celebrate that today. Now, here's the thing. If you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, I want to encourage you to just Hold back from taking communion and celebrating with us because that's what this is. This is a proclamation that Jesus is your Savior. And if you're not ready to say that, that is fine. We're happy to be on this journey with you and for whenever you're ready to take that step. But if you're not there yet, then just 
hold off for now. But maybe you just recently, you just now just prayed that prayer. You put your faith in Jesus. Then join us in taking communion and celebrating together. There's a miracle that happens in the church. And by the way, that miracle of unity is not stopped when we're physically distant. We can be physically distant, but we're still miraculously unified because of the work that Jesus did. So let's take communion together. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take that bread. It's a symbol of the broken body of Jesus. He allowed his body to be, to be broken for us. He sacrificed his body for us so that our sins could be paid for and we could be welcomed into the family of Christ. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Go ahead and take that juice and be reminded that this is a symbol of the shed blood of Jesus that binds us together the shed blood of Jesus that purchased our salvation, the Son of God, the greatest treasure of the universe, expended so that we could be saved. Let's take the juice together. Let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are our hope. You are our living hope. Nothing changes that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are courageous. And now we, in this moment, will not fear. We will take courage and follow after our King wherever you guide us. Thank you for making us and adopting us in as your part of your family. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.